This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. How's it? How's it hanging, bro? Hey Craig. Hey, hey, Craig. Yeah, I'm I'm doing all right today. Well, your voice is really high. I thought I, it'd be I lower. <laughs> well, um, did you yeah, like see I'm the drinking... Philly fanatic and get scared? Yes, he <laughs> he terrifies me actually. So, and I really wasn't expecting to see him up here in the greater New York metropolitan area. <laughs> So it was really awkward. It's surprisingly hard to think of things that they would say that aren't things we would also say. That's very true. We say all the same things. Basically, yes. <laughs> I think we do a little bit more... Giggling. Yes, and like lady yelling, although <clears throat> Craig is the master giggler, so... <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's why it's appropriate that I was pretending to be him. Yeah. <laughs> As the laughier of the two of us. That's very true. No, that's very true. <laughs> um. Well, Andrew... <laughs> This yes, Craig. Charade has completely fallen apart. <laughs> Do we want to tell our listeners what's going on here? A- absolutely, everyone. Welcome to Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read, or My as we're is... calling it this week, Overdames. Overdames. <laughs> yes, this is Operation Overdames. My name is Sophie, and my name is Craig. By which I mean week... Margaret. <laughs> JK, JK, she's Margaret. JK. And this week, we are doing a Freaky Friday thing with with our top podcast bros, Andrew and Craig, where we host their podcast, and they write our newsletter to Bossy Dames. Um, I was thinking it might be valuable for overdue listeners who aren't already familiar with our newsletter. Yeah. To to have a little intro, can you can you Although do that for us? They've been listening for a while. They've met us both individually. Uh, True. I've been on overdue a couple times to talk about various different books important to the childhoods of many, though not me. And uh, Sophie was on recently discussing Renata Adler's yep. Speedboat, yep, uh, in hilarious and engrossing detail. But when we are not occasionally providing color commentary on overdue. We are providing boatloads of colorful commentary on the entire internet in our own newsletter, Two Bossy Dames, which you can sign up for if you get to the end of this episode and we're like, I like those ladies and their viewpoint. I'd like to hear more from them. You can find us at tinyletter.com slash dames, and you would get a weekly delivery every Friday of the top five things each of us thinks was best on the internet this week. Lately, we've been including a uh, deep dive roundup on Hamilton News every single week. Amazing gifts, sometimes some original writing and advice, and uh, lots of just cheerful, funny lady shouting that's angrier than it seems like you would expect it to be. But also charming. Extremely charming. Unnervingly yes. charming, I think our Patreon says. Yes. It's, it's a bit of a high wire act. <laughs> One that we're accustomed to because we're women and that's life. Yes, basically. Speaking of things that aren't great for women. <laughs> hey, 
Margaret, what book did you read this week? I read The Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews. Ooh. That um, seminal classic passed between uh, girls at summer camps since time immemorial, or and, roughly 1979. And the bus to school, and it, at my middle school, it was passed around at, um, like right next to the flagpole outside <laughs> the outside the main entrance to the school. That um, is that is very appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Super dog-eared. <laughs> Super dog-eared. So we just want to provide a, a trigger warning for our listeners. Um, this is a book that heavily features many different varieties of child abuse, including physical and emotional abuse, um, and also, rather infamously, incest. Um, we're going to be talking fairly explicitly about all of those things in this episode, um, and we are going to be making jokes we wanted to make it really clear now that the jokes are about the book and the writing. Yeah. Um, and absolutely are not at the expense of survivors of this type of abuse. Yeah. Um, so we just want to make that clear for those listeners who might not wish to have a discussion of those topics right in their ear. Um, That's totally legitimate choice. Absolutely. We, and we totally we'll understand. You. Yes, we will miss you. But we, but we wanted you to understand. know up front what was going to go down. Yes. Yeah, we would not spring that on people. Unlike V.C. Andrews, who springs a lot of things Woo! All right. on so, the Dolan gangers or yeah, whatever. Oh, right. Yes. That's a fascinating thing for us to talk about, the naming conventions in this book. Um, <laughs> before we get into that, um, let's talk a little bit about V.C. Andrews herself. Yeah. Who is this character, Sophie? Yeah, so V.C. Uh, Andrews, her given name was Cleo Virginia Andrews, so she inverted her initials for publication because she didn't want people to think her name was curriculum vitae andrews maybe maybe uh i have also heard a rumor that it's because her publisher said that they thought that vc andrews sounded more like masculine <laughs> which is fascinating because these books are so overwhelmingly feminine feminine yeah <laughs> the idea that anyone would imagine that a man wrote these is <laughs> bananas to me but actually um, I'll get to this in a minute. Uh, her, so she's from Virginia. She was the youngest child in her family. She had two older brothers. She never married. Mm -hmm. She lived with her mother throughout her life. Mm -hmm. um, and she had an interesting medical history, which Ooh. I only bring up because it comes up as a plot point in her one standalone book, The Truly Bonkers, My <laughs> Sweet Audrina. There's two stories about what happened with her health. One is that she took a very, very bad fall down mm -hmm. a spiral staircase as a young, like, pre-adolescent. Mm -hmm. um, and that botched operations to, to address her injuries wound up leading to basically, like, life in a wheelchair mm -hmm. um due to some really severe back injuries that then resulted in arthritis all of which is interesting because this book is ableist as fuck yeah oh yeah it yes it really is um so anyway she eventually wound up writing like a lot of short stories and um some gothic romances um under pseudonyms and then but she had this story within her um of four children locked away secretly in an attic and their horrible experiences. And she just felt that she really, really, really needed to tell it. 
And she wound up publishing the book in 1979, and it became an enormous runaway success. And she became very wealthy on the basis of um, her royalties from that book. Mm-hmm. And then she got these huge advances for um, for sequels. And so there's ultimately five books in this series about the Dollenganger family. And then she also wrote the first two books in what became the Heaven series about a is described in something that I read online. I can't remember where the, the, the family, the Castile family are described as being incredibly dun, dun, dun. trashy. That's the word that they used on the website. <laughs> yeah. um, and incredibly good looking um, from West Virginia. Um, and then she also wrote My Sweet Audrina, mm-hmm. um, where there's a character that's a lot like her in terms of having fallen down a spiral staircase and being... Um, sort of permanently injured. Um, and then she died of breast cancer in the mid in 1986. Um, and very sadly, something I read indicated that she was working so hard on these books. Like she just wanted to get this story out. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really wanted to finish it that she neglected to get treatment until it was too late. Huh. Which is really sad. And I mean, it sounds like her case was. Like, by the time she noticed that something was not quite right, mm-hmm. her case was fairly advanced anyway. But she she put off seeking treatment in order to finish writing these books. And the, so she did not complete work on the final Dollenganger book before her death. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Her, yeah, her estate hired a ghostwriter, mm-hmm. Andrew Niderman, who's most famous for um, under his own name um, for having written The Devil's Advocate. Yeah. Sure. I'm familiar um, with that film. Sure. Yes. There's a lot of uh, Al Pacino scenery chewing in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he has been her ghostwriter since like 1986. And he has been prolific because there's the Dollenganger family series. There's the Castile family series, the Cutler family series, the mm-hmm. Landry family series, the Logan family series, the Orphans miniseries, the Wildflowers miniseries. Those were the ones that were for sale in uh, convenience stores when I was a teenager. Yes. Yeah. Um, the-, <laughs> the Hudson Family Series, the Shooting Star Series, the De Beers Family Series, the Broken Wing Series, the Gemini Series, the Shadow Series, the Early Spring Series, the Secrets Series, the Delia Series, the Heavenstone Series, the March Family Series. Way to, and- way to step up to Louisa May Alcott, buddy. Yeah, that was <laughs> untoward. The, the Kindred Series and the Forbidden Series. So, you know, yeah. he's got a lot of got a lot of probable incest that he felt needed to be published needed to be published the world needs to know well and there has continued to be a market for it um this book is so weird um so this book has a reputation of being we were joking around teen girls sneak it to one another because it's like one of the dirty books that somehow people didn't realize they couldn't read (laughs) i definitely realized i wasn't supposed to read it (laughs) um all of my readings of vc andrews oeuvre uh were (laughs) extremely clandestine yeah um and for sure my parents would have been horrified (laughs) 
had they known, like, I don't know that these books were actually on their radar, but they could definitely have told just by the cover art, like that, all that creepy ass keyhole cover art. Yeah, those keyholes were very engrossing. (laughs) Yeah, the font that they chose for Mm -hmm. the titles, like, I didn't, I didn't know that that screamed gothic. Yeah. But my parents definitely would have known. Well, and to me, it definitely communicated like someone's going to get into some sexy trouble in this book when I yes. saw those Wildflower series ones that have the same format. The yeah. um, the little keyhole on the cover and it's like yep. a girl and she looks scared and there's yeah. like a big mansion around her. Mm-hmm. Creepy mansion. Creepy mansion. Um, But for me, it's so funny to think about sort of like how these become the books that teen girls read. So – approaching this where it's got this reputation as like a scandalous scandalous sexy book you expect there to be a lot of sex in it and there's a lot of disturbing content in it all throughout but there isn't anything that even resembles sex until page 337 of this 389 page book you know like the, the, we get to the incest pretty quickly mm-hmm. um and although there's a lot of incest buildup throughout the book, um, you actually don't get any sexual activity between – well, you don't get anything that resembles sex until page 337 right. of a 389-page book. So I was left feeling, like, sh- like angry on behalf of all of my – lady forebears who like had to settle for this it's like that woody allen joke you know of like the the two yiddish women of the catskills and they're like the food here is terrible and they're like yes in such small portions oh yes like, that's how i feel <laughs> about the sex in flowers in the attic yes it is terrible because it's one incest mm-hmm. two fueled by abuse three that's definitely a rape four there's four. only one sex scene yeah and what a ripoff like- it's like 300 pages into the book. Come yeah. on. It, it, yes. It's my. Um. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that it's there's a lot of very screwed up eroticism. Yeah. In this book. Like there's the scene. From where the, the very beginning. There's yes, a lot of screwed up eroticism. Yes. Why, in don't this we, book. why don't we begin at the beginning and tell people <laughs> what they should expect plot wise. Um, so the basic plot of the book is there is a beautiful flam- family of blonde people living a happy life in uh Mar- in in Pennsylvania. Um, where they're neither rich we weren't rich and we weren't poor. If we lacked some necessity, I couldn't name it. If we had luxuries, I couldn't name those either without comparing what we had to what others had, and nobody had more or less in our middle class neighborhood. Uh, in other words, short and simple, we were just ordinary, run-of-the-mill children. So this is the Dollinganger family uh, in their happy days. And I'm going to say, even in their happy days, they are kind of incesty as fuck. Yeah. Um, when the narrator goes to describe her father, it reads like a, a personal ad in like um, in, in like a – it reads like a description you would find on a website – where you would procure the services of someone for sexual activity. All right. Um, Our father was perfect. 
He stood six foot two, weighed 180 pounds, and his hair was thick and flaxen blonde and waved just enough to be perfect. His eyes were cerulean blue and they sparkled with laughter, with his great zest for living and having fun. His nose was straight and neither too long nor too narrow nor too thick. He played tennis and golf like a pro and swam so much that he kept the suntan all through the year. Just, like, that's not, those are not terms one would be accustomed to think of their parent in. No. Um, similarly, Mama does not get a much more parental description. Um, Mama spent half the day in the beauty parlor having her hair shampooed and set and her fingernails polished. And when she came home to take a long bath in perfumed oil water, I'd perch in her dressing room and wait to watch her emerge in a filmy negligee. She'd sit at her dressing table to meticulously apply makeup. And I, so eager to learn, drank in everything she did to turn herself from just a pretty woman into a creature so ravishingly beautiful she didn't look real. The most amazing part of all of this was our father thought she didn't wear makeup. He believed she was naturally a striking beauty. So those are the first two pages of the first chapter of this book. So right away, you're stepping into some like highly, highly eroticized yes. interactions. Yes. Um, and, oh. <laughs> and And like you're like, if you're reading this as an adult, especially reading this as an adult, imagining like 11 year old girls reading it, you're like squicked the fuck out. Yeah. Although <laughs> I think, th- I mean, this makes a great case for readers seeing what they're ready to see. Yeah, totally. In a text. Um, because I, I read these books at 11 and 12 and I knew good and well <laughs> that they weren't for me. And yet. And yet they absolutely were for me. Like, I, right. I think because I also think that books find the readers that they are that that they are meant to have as a readership. Same. So, same. yeah, I there. Oh, man. Carry on with the plot. <laughs> we'll formulate so, more thoughts later. <laughs> in this uh, into the scene, we have two parents and two children. So there's Chris, the father. Christopher, his stunning blonde son. Of course. There's Corin, the mother, and Kathy, her beautiful blonde daughter. Um, and the first trauma in the book is that it turns out Corinne is pregnant, and Kathy has like a meltdown immediately, thinking that like her dad is going to stop loving her because she wants to be the only little girl that he loves, and if there's another little girl and she's pretty and she charms him, then she'll just be forgotten. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, and he tells her at one point, so when he, when she finds out that her mom is having twins, um, he makes sure to tell her, it's like, I might have another daughter, but I'll never love her as much as you because you were my first. That's a super healthy thing to say. It's a super, it's a super healthy. A plus parenting. A plus parenting all around. Um, but obviously this. This idol can't last long because we've seen the girl on the cover right. with her sad face imprisoned yep. in the keyhole of, like, mm-hmm. a giant Victorian gothic manor. So, like, right. shit's got to get dark. We can't stay in this happy middle place forever. Um, so, obviously, the father dies, and he dies suddenly, and he dies leaving the family in debt because his wife came from a very, very wealthy family and never learned how to manage money, and he loved her too much to make her try. 
<laughs> also, a really healthy relationship dynamic. Super healthy relationship Guys, dynamic. Guys, people, I hope you're taking notes because that right. is definitely how you yeah, ought to live in the how, world. This is this is definitely a template for like the perfect marriage. Yeah, adulting um, 101. Welcome, everyone. So, you know, I lost my dad at a young age, so I always have a strange reaction or I just have a particular relationship to reading how mm-hmm. books handle that kind of stuff. And right. this book handles it like garbage in exactly <laughs> the way that you would expect it to. And I think in a way that's kind of typical for how it approaches all of th- like it. It's dealing with a lot of shit that when it actually happens to you is really heavy and really traumatizing. And it's not lessening the trauma that's experienced, but it's expressing it in such like a purple prosy way that it makes it seem like almost exciting or almost glamorous. Um, Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. To comfort her, Corinne, to comfort her daughter on her father's death when she's saying, you know, he should have lived to be an old man. She replies, sometimes death is not as terrible as you think. Your father will never grow old or infirm. He'll always stay young. You'll remember him that way. Young, handsome, strong. Don't cry anymore, Kathy, for as your father used to say, there's a reason for everything and a solution for every problem. So I mean, like, (laughs) in the world of this book, that is actually, I mean... You're supposed to know that Corinne is garbage, like, real quick. Yeah. And she's super garbage. Um, But you're also supposed to find it kind of comforting. Like, oh, isn't it good that he never had to become ugly? Wouldn't that have been terrible? Right. That's definitely the worst thing that can happen to a human being. Is becoming ugly. Is becoming ugly. Um, So, father's dead. They're deeply in debt. Um, Mother is useless. Uh literally describes herself as such um i am a pretty useless ornament who always believed she'd have a man to take care of her i don't know how to do anything i can't even type so that's corinne but thankfully um that's the bad news she saved the best news for last and it is now hold your breath you are not going to believe what i have to tell you for my parents are rich not middle-class rich or upper-class, but very, very rich. Filthy, unbelievably, sinfully rich. They live in a fine big house in Virginia, such a house as you've never seen before. I know, I was born there and I grew up there. And when you see that house, this will seem like a shack in comparison. And didn't I say we are going to live with them, my mother and father? Um. So right away, the kids are like, why do we have these grandparents that we never heard of before my father's death? And why do you seem so unhappy about going back to this gorgeous mansion? And it turns out that uh, Corinne has angered her parents in some way and been written out of her father's will. And she has to sneak them back to win him over and get herself put back in the will. Um, And she's confident that as soon as her parents see her beautiful, beautiful blonde children, that they'll fall in love with them immediately and all will be forgiven. However, that's not what happens. Instead, they're smuggled back into the mansion in the dark of the night and, like, shoved into a tiny room that has an entrance to the attic and told that they are going to have to hide there all day, every day, uh, and follow their grandmother, their terrifying, abusive grandmother's incredibly strict rules that include, weirdly, a lot of rules about not having incest with each other. Where it's like, boys and girls can never use the bathroom at the same time. Why would they want to? 
only grandma knows. It's like right. you're not Ooh. allowed to look at each other. Um, you're not allowed to touch the private parts of your body unless you're washing them. And even then, you should do it very, very quickly. Um, and if she ever – and, like, they're never allowed to show each other their skin. And if she ever comes in and she finds the boys and the girls, like, in even a partial state of undress with each other, she'll tear the skin – peel the skin off their backs. So already some weird stuff is going on. And Corinne says to her mother, like, oh, you haven't changed at all. You're just as nasty and suspicious-minded as ever. My children are innocent and pure. And her mom is like, we thought you and your uncle were innocent and pure, too. Shows what we know. Right. And twist, what Corinne did that made her dad and mom so angry with her is um, marry her half-uncle. So... Her dad is super, super rich and super old and super evil. And his dad remarried when he was like 40 um, and had a second child by a much, much younger second wife. Um, And although the two sons should have split the estate equally because the wife was so young and her child so young when her husband died – uh, instead, he just kicked them out and sent them to live in poverty and kept all of the money for himself. Um, but then his... So what you're saying is this is basically sense and sensibility. Yeah, with but, way more incest. But evil. Yeah. Okay. Sense and sensibility if somebody locked it in Mr. Rochester's attic and it went crazy. <laughs> basically. And Which like is also why got people... like way worse written than either of those books. Right. But like that <laughs> is kind of instantly a major appeal factor. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, (laughs) So the young wife dies, leaving the half-brother of um, Corinne's dad orphaned, and he is brought to live with them. And um, her parents have always been like crazy religious fanatics who are super, super sexually repressive. And there's a major overtone that like, Corinne's dad's attitude towards her and her youthful beauty is like, if I can't fuck my daughter, no one can. I mean, it's not Ooh. it's not put in terms that explicit, but like that's definitely the that's definitely the sentence you have. How, how is that even a thing that people think? I well, this book seems to be very Freudian in thinking that like everybody wants to have sex with their parent, and like every parent wants to have sex with their opposite sex child, right? Um, well, then, I guess the internal logic yeah. <laughs> is structurally sound. Yeah, yeah. This is just a situation where, like, everybody is fighting off the need to bone their family members all of the time. And it's just a, it's a cross we all have to bear. Right. <laughs> Everyone has their struggles. <laughs> These are the struggles Ooh. of the Dollengangers. Right. Um, who are, in fact, the Foxworths. They had to change their name to cover up their... Uh, well, here. Oh. So... so Corinne is 14 when 17-year-old Christopher is brought to the house, her handsome young half-uncle, and she's, like, never been allowed to see a man before. And so, obviously, they immediately fall in love, despite the fact that they're super related. Um, And then behind Corinne's parents' backs, they, like, sneak off and elope. And then they come back and they're like, we're married. Aren't you excited for us? And her parents are like, no, we're not. Devil spawn. Get out. We're disinheriting you from the will. Um, like, we never want to see you again. And so they run and they change their names so that no one will ever know that they are uncle, half uncle and half niece in addition to husband and wife. Got it. Um, and they have their kids. And of course, the father uh, 
when he finds out that his half-brother and daughter have been married is like, your devil spawn are going to be cursed and they're going to have hunchbacks and horned feet and so on and so forth. Um, And Corinne and Chris see their beautiful, perfect children as evidence that they are blessed from God. Um, And, you know, evidence that God didn't, in fact, punish them. Uh, let me see if I can find the paragraph where this says, um, your father and I did worry when I was pregnant for the first time. He paced the hospital corridors all night until nearly dawn when a nurse came up and told him he had a son, perfect in every way. Then he had to run to the nursery to see for himself. You should have seen the joy on his face when he entered my room, bearing in his arms two dozen red roses and tears in his eyes when he kissed me. He was so proud of you, Christopher, so proud. He gave away six boxes of cigars and went out to bought you a plastic bat and a catcher's mitt and a football too because he was so happy. Four perfect children. So if God had wanted to punish us, he had four chances to give us deformed or mentally retarded children. Whoa. Instead, he gave us the very best. So mm. never let your grandmother or anyone else convince you that you are less than competent, less than worthy, or less than wholly pleasing in God's eyes. Because anyone who is disabled is apparently oh. not pleasing in God's eyes. Right. Like, you can definitely be wholly competent and pleasing in the eyes yep. of anyone. Ableist as fuck. And then she has them um, to like combat her grandmother, to combat her mother telling them that they're like cursed devil spawn. Yeah. Um, She says, I want you to repeat after me. We are perfect children. Mentally, physically, emotionally, we are wholesome and godly in every way possible. We have as much right to live, love, and enjoy life as any other children on this earth. Well, the Which last again, half of that is true. But it's true of all children <laughs> All on this children, earth, yes, exactly. Not merely the ones who are mentally, physically, emotionally wholesome. Right, and Perfect the ones that look... children in every way. Right. Like, you don't have to look like a poster child for the Aryan nation <laughs> to have a right to exist on this planet and be right. loved. Um, so basically, Corinne thinks her children are so beautiful that her parents will immediately forgive her for having um, married her uncle. Right. Um... Spoiler, that does not happen. Her parents don't forgive her. Her mom has invited her back and lied to her father about there being any issue, i.e. devil spawn, from her sinful marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, So she has to pretend to be childless until he dies so that she can inherit his sinful wealth. And, Um, like, do we have a timeline as to how long this demise will take? Well... Interesting that you should ask that question, Sophie, because (laughs) Corinne always seems to think that it's going to be just a couple of days before either he forgives her and writes her back into the will and she can reveal that she has kids or just a couple of days until he dies and she inherits all of his money. In fact, and under this assumption that it's a very temporary arrangement, the kids are trapped in one room in this giant mansion and the attic of the mansion, you know, there's the flowers in the attic. Right. Got it. I got it. Um, For an indefinite amount of time, at first they're counting it in months, then they're counting – at first they're counting it in days, then weeks, then months, then years. Right. Until oh, finally boy. the narrator is 12 when she goes into the attic um, and she is 16 when she leaves. Um, So Ooh. they are in there for four years total. And during that time, that's the majority of the book. Um, they are 
widely abused by their grandmother, um, catching sinful peaks of each other occasionally, um, left alone by their mom for months while she, like, lives the life of a wealthy Virginia socialite single um, and, like, gets herself a handsome young new husband. Um, who does the husband know about the existence of these children? Know about the existence of these children. Oh, wow, that's a great way to start a new relationship again. Yeah. Superior adult choices being great, made. Great here. adult choices. And um around the time that Corinne gets married, uh both Chris and Kathy finally lose faith that their mom is like ever going to yeah. get them out of the attic. Uh, when she initially puts them in there, she's like, I'm going to take a secretarial course and I'm going to earn enough money to get you and all of us out of this house and away from these like abusive, horrible monsters. Um, but of course, she's uh, like a lazy, indolent, lying woman whose only skill is being beautiful. So instead, she just starts enjoying being her dad's darling again and spending all of his money on furs. But and meanwhile, the dad hasn't written her back into the will. Like, meanwhile, the dad hasn't written her back into the will, still okay. doesn't know the uh, children exist, um, and is still completely opposed. Like, if any children existed, she would be disinherited immediately. Um, and the only contact they have reliably is with their horrible, horrible grandmother, who thinks that they are all steeped in sin and makes them memorize Bible passages and other fun things. And then with each other... And, of course, Chris and Kathy have to start treating their four, four-year-old and five-year-old twin siblings like they are their own children. And they pretend to be uh, the mom and dad of these kids. Um, that cannot end well. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just guessing here. No. Um, and they have a lot of disturbing, disturbing conversations. But their relationship changes where – here's how the narrator describe it. Once Chris had been a tease and I could never please. An older brother. But we changed up here. He and I, just as much as we altered our attic world. We lay side by side as an old mattress, stained and smelly, for hours on end, and talked and talked, making plans for the kind of lives we'd live once we were free and rich as Midas. We'd travel the world. He would meet and fall in love with the most beautiful, sexy woman who was brilliant, understanding, charming, witty, and enormous fun to be with. She'd be the perfect housekeeper, the most faithful and devoted of wives, the best of mothers, and she'd never nag, complain, or cry, or doubt his judgment, or be disappointed or discouraged if he made stupid mistakes on the stock market and lost all of their money. She'd understand he'd done his best, and soon he'd make a fortune again with his wits and clever brains. What wow. I can tell you Woo. is like the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> it is. is just everywhere. It sure I mean, is, even in horrible attics. Chris was only 14 when he went into the attic, and man, he managed to down a lot of what he was entitled to as a man. Sure did. And Kathy, in fairness, realizes it. She says, boy, did he leave me feeling low. How in the oh. world was I ever going to fill the needs of a man like Chris? Somehow or other, I knew he was setting the standard from which I'd judge all my future suitors. Mm-hmm. Right. Your your brother is definitely a suitor. <laughs> for sure. Um, oh. So, Chris wants to be a doctor. 
and Kathy wants to be a ballerina, so they spend their time in the attic rehearsing towards those roles in various different ways, and their mom comes up periodically to placate them with lavish gifts and then ignore them um, and cry every time they imply that she's not trying hard enough to get them out of the attic and call them ungrateful. Uh, so well, it's a real, obviously they are. It's a real beautiful scene, and into that scene, um, the kids get sick, and Kathy and Chris have to nurse them through it. Uh, they notice that after two years in the attics, their uh, ch- their children, the twins, haven't grown at all, and that their like heads are like too big for their like frail, malnourished bodies. Um, <laughs> This is awful. Yeah. At one point, the grandmother catches uh, Chris looking at Kathy while she's naked um, and decides that the appropriate punishment is that Kathy should have all of her hair chopped off. Uh, yes. Oh, I remember this scene so well. Oh, this stuff man. stuff is all so, so, so weird. Yeah. Um. So she demands that Kathy get her hair chopped off and says, like, either you'll get your hair chopped off or, like, I won't bring any of you food um, until you do. Because the way this works is every single day, the grandmother comes up to this abandoned North Wing and, like, leaves them a picnic basket that contains their food for the day. Oh. Um, and then goes back uh, because the servants can't know that there are children in the house because they would rat it out to the, like, terrifying dying tyrant uh, who's dying way too slowly for everyone's purposes. Um, and so she does stop bringing them food because they decide it's more important that Kathy not chop all of her hair off than that they eat. Um, but also, the grandmother sneaks back in in the middle of the night, drugs Kathy with a hypodermic syringe, and pours tar into her hair. <laughs> Because that's a thing you do. Yeah. What? That's a totally reasonable <sighs> thing to do. Yeah. Um, so Kathy and Christopher are like frantically trying to wash the tar out of each other's hair and also trying to subsist on like a pound of cheese and crackers for two weeks while their grandmother refuses to feed them. Um, and finally, they manage to placate her by like wrapping Kathy's head in a towel, but like chopping off just the front bits so it looks like she's cut off all of her hair wow this is Um, like some medieval siege stuff happening here with the tar yeah and the withhold like the blockade of the supplies yeah oh man um and this convinces the grandmother that the hair's been cut off and she starts feeding them again and she also starts bringing them donuts now, the kids have not been allowed to eat any sweets at all because mm-hmm. since they're secreted in the attic, they can't get cavities. And if you eat candy, you get cavities. Sure. So the donuts are initially perceived by them as like a peace offering. It's like, oh, we're all getting all these donuts all of the time. Isn't this great? And this is um, four years in. Their mother has remarried uh, to a man who doesn't know that she has children. And – um left them to be abused by her mother for months while she gallivanted on a European vacation. As you do. Yeah. Um, And when she came back, 
and the kids accused her of not trying hard enough to get her out of the attic. She was like, look at the beautiful gifts I got you. Isn't this evidence that I've been thinking about you this entire time? And says, like, until you can treat me with more love and respect, like, you won't see anything of me at all. And then just leaves them again for another 10 days. Like, God forbid they be mad that she's left them locked in an attic for four years. Right. Also, maybe gifts aren't their love language. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, come on. Maybe their love language is sunshine. Right. And Maybe. I don't know, actions, specific actions being taken to show that she values their existence as humans. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just riffing here. You're just you're just spitballing. No, totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, so she. So um, at this point, like Kathy meets her stepdad while they're like sneaking down into her mother's room to try and steal money. But he's asleep and she like can't help herself. And she's so overcome basically by the chance of seeing another man that like while he's sleeping in the chair, she kisses him and then she runs away. And then Chris, a couple of nights later, is down in his mother's room. They've like stolen a key and they're trying to build up enough money that they can all escape safely. That is actually a solid plan. Good job. Yeah. yeah. Um, He ends up trapped in the room when uh, Corinne and her husband Bart come back in Um, and he overhears a conversation between the two of them where Bart relates having had like a very sweet dream that like a beautiful young girl with long blonde hair snuck into his room and kissed him while he was sleeping and apparently he's told corinne about it a bunch and corinne is like super jealous Mm. and chris puts two and two together and figures out that his sister like kissed their stepfather and he comes back upstairs and he's super super mad about it and so he rapes her obviously obviously because that's the totally reasonable way to handle it. And it's that like, is how you process you're, emotions. You're mine and you'll always be mine. Mm. And then afterwards, he cries and he's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to rape you. And she's like, you didn't really. If I hadn't wanted it to happen, I would have fought harder. Yeah. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then very shortly after that, um, Chris is sneaking downstairs to try and steal all of the jewelry and get like all of the money that they possibly can. But he gets downstairs and all of the jewelry is gone and all of their mother's personal belongings are gone Uh. because she and her husband have left the house and her father has actually been dead for nine months. Nuh-uh. Yeah. Huh. And she inherited the money, but she kept the kids imprisoned because she inherited the money on the condition that it never be revealed that she had children in her first marriage and also on the condition that she never have children in the future wow this is some middle march <laughs> shit yeah like so she... what i know is a codicil like that even legal i i have some real problems it would be but there it is so man At this point, Chris puts two and two together and realizes that the donuts they've been receiving started coming up right around the time of their mom's remarriage. Oh, boy. And also that the donuts and all of the food that's been brought up to the attic is uh, the servants are told that it's poisoned food to kill the mice that infest that wing. Oh, my God. And he's like arsenic is a powdered thing. Mm -hmm. At this point, one of the two twins has died. From uh, a mysterious ailment, and all right. of them have been getting sick and vomiting a ton for months. Hmm. And he figures out that uh, the donuts have been covered in powdered arsenic, and that Corinne has been slowly poisoning all of them to death. 
uh, so that she can keep the money she wrested from her father and uh, never have to admit it. So, so the donuts point, were never from the grandmother as a peace offering. Nope. Actually, they were infanticide donuts. Infanticide donuts. A very okay. popular flavor at Dunkin' Donuts is everywhere. Wow. Um, and <laughs> they sneak out and they manage to escape uh, in the wake of this discovery. And they have like the arsenic donuts in a bag. And mm-hmm. they have to choose, like, are we going to go to the police with these arsenic donuts and prove that our mother was trying to kill us? And they're like, no, instead, we're just going to try and survive the three of us that remain. And, like, Kathy throws the donuts away. And they get on a train and they leave town. And that's where the book ends. Woo. Um, okay. So, yeah, it is a doozy. I was thinking the exact <laughs> same word. <laughs> it is. Real, real crazy and super problematic. Yeah. Um, ooh. Uh, so, as you were describing the plot, mm-hmm. like, I, I read these books 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, I had not remembered the thing about the donuts. <laughs> and I definitely had not remembered that it was the mother who had furnished them. Yeah. Because she's such a greedy, horrible garbage person. So garbage. <sighs> wow. Um, and of course, Chris can't see because he's like incestually besotted with her. But of right. course, Kathy can see because she's incestually jealous of her. Right. Because she basically wanted to be sleeping with her dad and then right. also wants to sleep with her stepfather. And obviously, as soon as I finished the book, I was like, well, I have to go to Wikipedia and read what happens in all of the other books in this series. Oh, because yeah. They're real special. You don't leave. And what I can tell you is a whole lot more incest. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Tons and tons more incest. At yeah, this when... point, Kathy actually does marry her stepdad. She gets pregnant by her stepdad and lures him away from her mom, who has to remain childless to stay rich. Yep. Um. Then her mom goes crazy and burns down their house, and he mm-hmm. dies inside it. So then she marries like the guy who took her and Christopher in. So she marries her guardian, and then he dies. But as he's dying, he's like, "You should be with Christopher. He's the one who's always loved you." So they dollinganger it, and they yep. run away to a place where nobody knows them with her two sons from previous relationships, and they pretend they aren't brother and sister, and they live as a married couple. Mm-hmm. Which is stressful. And then their kids have a lot of baggage about the fact that their parents are brother and sister and that gets worked out in problematic ways yeah so incest remains big for the dollingangers which is the name that they pick for themselves and they call themselves the dresden dolls because they're all so beautiful and porcelain and blonde and haired yeah Yeah. nordic gods yeah so one of the things i think is super interesting about these books is that they are they are certainly intended to be titillating. Yes. And they are also about how abuse and abusive patterns replicate themselves um, because yeah. they are because they are screwed up habits of behavior in mind. Yeah, I think and, that's very true. And when you are raised not when you raise yourself in the absence of any kind of healthy uh, role models for adult behavior and when the rules that you are living under are like exp- explicitly assume bad mm-hmm. intent um 
and sort of like this weird Calvinist, you know, you're born saved. Sinful, yeah. Bo- born, yeah, like you're either born sinful you're born or you're born in sin saved. and you live in sin every day until you die. <laughs> yeah, like that. The, those assumptions have, well, they have a lot of power. And yeah, like there's, there's definitely something very triumphant about the kids figuring out how to get out of this terrible situation. Like, yeah, they rescue themselves. Chris and Kathy are fiercely devoted to Carrie and Corey. Um, yep. And like, they're, they're just hell bent on getting out of that situation. That is admirable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, as an adult reader, I, I really can't remember if I liked any of the characters. <laughs> like, I can't remember if I liked Kathy and Chris. I don't think I shipped them. God, I hope I didn't. <laughs> um, like, I really just... I, 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 it is a page turner, though. Like, I really wanted to know, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Yeah. Like, how are they going to get out of this pickle? Well, for um, me, I just kept wanting to be like, when is the sex going to happen? <laughs> there's I know so it's much in here somewhere. Yeah, there's so much more sex in the subsequent books. Yeah, I imagine. I um, imagine. Yeah, like, Kathy... Kathy gets around, and I don't she mean does. that in a bad way. No, I don't either. I think that she... I would actually sort of rather that she got around in, like, an active I desire sex and so I seek it out way, but I get the impression that she gets around in, like, a I'm just so beautiful that I overwhelm all of the men around me. It's kind of both. <laughs> like, Good. the way that, like, her mother regards her beauty and sex appeal as, like, oh, this is the only thing that's good about me. Mm-hmm. And Kathy is like... This is a weapon that I can use ah. to get mine. <laughs> Good for Kathy. And I, yeah, I I definitely appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But there's some like I think it's important to look at these books in the in the context in which they were published. Like you and I have talked a lot about our um, interest in the way that the way that the culture yeah. is now sort of really beginning to reevaluate the late 60s and yes. the 1970s yes we have and this talked is a, a lot about that yeah so this is a book that came out in 1979 and um i think it's really important to look at it in terms of um things like uh one of the podcasts that we really really like you must remember this mm-hmm. which is all about film history and like secret and forgotten aspects of hollywood history yeah um the woman who writes and hosts that podcast um, did a great like 13 part series last spring and summer about Charles Manson's Hollywood. Right. And um, the Tate murders. Yeah. And-, and basically how the fucked up environment of 1970s Hollywood and California really was the only circumstance in which uh, like Charles Manson could thrive and how yes. like the in the inbred mis- misogyny of that scene was crucial to how he was able to operate in such a shady way for such a long time without anybody really realizing what was going on. Yes. Yes. Like everything in that milieu was so screwed up that it was kind of a perfect crucible for all of that stuff Mm -hmm. to happen. And like the sexual revolution had sort of curdled into this, well, if you don't want to have sex, there's clearly something wrong with you and right. you're really hung up and a square <laughs> and you can't hang. And um, like which so was it's that a... great piece 
in um, Jezebel about yes. Laurie Maddox and David Bowie. Right. Like the recent death of David Bowie has sort of caused there to be a lot of uh, like reevaluation of mm-hmm. um, the relationship of rock stars to their very young fans, right? Um, particularly female fans, and sort of like, how do women claim power under a set of parameters that are is so inimical to our health and well-being? Right. right. And the what's interesting about that situation is that, yes, David Bowie was a grown man and definitely should not have been having sex with a very young teenager. Yeah. At the same time, Laurie Maddox survives him and has said from the very beginning that that night was one of the best nights of her life. Yeah. And she was very happy to have sex with David Bowie. Um, So I feel like several things are happening at once and you can't say it's only one thing or it's only the other right it's all those things at the same time and that's really complicated and very interesting and i think that this book really like definitely draws on a lot of traditions of victorian novels which you and i are both super fans of yep totally draws on like the gothic tradition Mm -hmm. and like the most dark disturbing aspects of fairy tales Mm -hmm. like the super classic Grimm's fairy tales where like people's hands and feet are being cut off and children are you know being shoved into ovens like it's that's what you remember about Hansel and Gretel it's not that delicious candy house (laughs) it's that she was fattening them up to actually eat them right um (laughs) and yet I kind of feel for that witch because could she not just live like <laughs> exactly these annoying ass children are coming and messing with her beautiful house uh i feel it it's hard out here for a crone property owner yes you can see where on. she's coming from yeah anyway um <laughs> this book is totally of a piece with yeah. all that stuff uh i definitely agree with you i think that um Having read those pieces recently, having listened to that series and having read that piece on Laurie Maddox, you really do get a sense of just like what a toxic stew we were with regards to women's sexuality in the very early 80s and late 70s. Yeah. Um, And child safety, too. And it's also not like we've extricated ourselves from that because you and I are uh, 10 years apart in age. Mm -hmm. Um, But this book was still... You know, when I was a teenager, this book was still around. V.C. Andrews' books were still being written, and they were still very much of a type. Um, And one of the things that I kept thinking of, you know, going back to it earlier, is the, you know, such terrible sex and and, and such small portions. Yes. (laughs) Is I feel like that's very true of almost all of the sexual narratives that young women from our generation had access to. Yeah. Um, where, like, I heard of sex, like, the first two places I remember encountering, encountering it um, were, like, a teen magazine story about a brother and sister who had, like, a forced incest- incestuous relationship. Um, and it's, like, one of those survivor accounts. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I would probably say that up until today, it's, like, if mention of sex is going to happen in Seventeen magazine, it is going to be sexual abuse. Right? Because even even now, do you think that's true? Well, if we have any readers, uh, sorry, any listeners, listeners. 
who are readers of current Seventeen magazine, and you wanted to check that assumption on my part, we would be happy to hear it. But definitely, when I was a teen, um, which would have been up until 2005, in Seventeen magazine, you only heard about sex if you were hearing about surviving a sexual assault. That's Um, terrible. Yeah, and I think that that's pretty par for the course with um, with sexual narratives we allowed young women to read when you and I were young women. Yeah, no, that's definitely true of, yeah, when I was and coming of age. It's like when you think about it, it's like you were coming of age and what were your girls passing around? They were passing around the flowers in the attic. Yes. What were the boys passing around? They were passing around, you know, the Playboy magazine they found hidden in the woods. Right. Yes. Right? And like mm-hmm. it's a very, very different and I think very informative orientation towards sex and how we expect our um, – I think there's the attitude that men will be interested in it naturally and inevitably and will find yeah. it wherever they have to. And then there's the idea that girls should be sheltered from it at all costs except to learn about the ways it's dangerous. Yes. And right. how to prevent – and, and right. that, that preventing a dangerous situation – is their responsibility. Yes. Um, and then there's also the idea that if girls are going to be allowed to deal with sex, that it's got to be in a very, very squeaky clean way that's still sort of educating. Like, for example, right. Forever by Judy Bloom. I Yes. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> right? I was thinking about like the timeline of when I read V.C. <laughs> Andrews versus Forever. And V.C. Yeah. Andrews was sixth and seventh and eighth grade. And then I read Forever at sleepaway camp the summer between like eighth and ninth grade. Right. And that's sex where if it's not explicit that this is sex, your parents would be okay with you reading about it. If it's not explicit, like your, your like woke, like 1980s Jewish mom gave it to you when you were 14 and was like, I think you're ready for this now. Yeah, no, that did not happen. Yeah. <laughs> that did not happen in your house. But I feel like no. it happened in many houses. I feel like oh, that yeah, is, for sure. I feel like that book was almost written more for like woke Jewish moms totally. than it was oh, for yeah. kids. Yeah, and it's girls. not like and it's interesting because like my parents did not super police what I watched on TV. Yeah. So like I definitely <laughs> had watched sex scenes on TV and been Same. like, whoa. Like those people like are having a good time. A thing in the water. Yeah. Yeah. So like a really formative one was the the scene on Moonlighting where Maddie and David finally did it to the strains of Be My Baby. Like that <laughs> that is a super standout scene. Yeah. Um and yeah, but but like they um, they did not want me reading trash. I mean, that, and that is right. the word that was used in my house for sure. And I was lucky because I had a couple of YA books that definitely had like sex positive sex sure. happening in them. Yeah. So like there are the Alana books by Tamara Pierce. Oh, where yes. like not only are those things sex positive as fuck, but also like Alana like goes and she gets like a magical birth control charm, yep. but it doesn't feel like it's like two. It's not like. It's not like forever where like yes. I read forever as an adult and like all of the contraceptive methods were updated yes. to still be true for right now because that book right. is like 80% a novel, 20% informational pamphlet. Yes. Um, and Alana, it's basically just a novel, but at the same time, when she has sex, it's pretty fade to black. You don't actually get to like. Yeah. Like, like it's clear some- that. That everyone gory is having specific a... details in your VC Andrews. Yes, yes. There's yes. a rigid saying, member like, that's mentioned. Yeah, the Alana books and yielding uh, flesh. 
Oh boy, yielding flesh. Um, mm-hmm. The Alana books, yeah, they're 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 not about her sexual coming sure, of age, but they like, include it. But they um, yes, because they would. And then the one that had like the most explicit sex that I'd read was uh, The Shadow in the North by Philip Pullman, which is oh. the second book in his Sally Lockhart series. Yeah. And the way that one goes down is Sally is like super feminist, woke Victorian, like business lady. Mm-hmm. And she won't marry the man who's in love with her because she's like, these Victorian marriage laws are garbage. Once I marry you, I'm basically just chattel. Right. <laughs> so I can't marry you. And then she has a change of heart. But very explicitly, before she says yes to his proposal of marriage, she's like, we're going to have sex so that we know my body belongs to me and I can do what I want with it. Right. I want to have sex with you before. It is very nice. And like that part is great. And like it's not super explicit. Again, I don't think there's rigid members or yielding flesh, but it's a lot more explicit than the Alana books. Um, Yeah. And then he immediately dies that night in a fire. (laughs) Spoilers for Shadow in the North. Sorry. Punished. Punished. Well, and in a way that's not meant to be like, you're not supposed to think like, oh, like she sinned Um, because she goes on to have like this very, very happy life with their extended family. She does get pregnant and she has a child from it, but it's all a setup for the third book where the evil villain from the first book comes back and like trumps up a fake marriage against Sally so that he can steal her baby and she has to like go underground with her baby and find him and kill him. Oh, my goodness. With the help of a socialist journalist, of course. Naturally. Naturally. They're great. Um, They have some – those books, the Sally Lockhart books, have some – like, they're meant to be sort of like Penny Dreadfuls from the Victorian era, so they're not the most progressive in terms of how they're portraying people of other races. They're not terrible, but they're not great. Um, Like the Decemberists. (laughs) Sure. Maybe. Um. But they're very good on a feminist perspective, and they're, like, really, really fun to read. Solid awesome. mysteries. I think so there's, a, were... like, a TV series starring Billy Piper. It was. It was oh, made I'm... into a TV series starring Billy Piper. I may watch those. Um, But they're uh, – so those were my, like, two polls. It was sort of like I had the kind of stories about sex you were allowed to read in Teen Girl magazines, which would be, like, detailed, right, and then I had uh, like occasional glimpses of it in YA novels, not explicitly about that. And I think that it's interesting because I think naturally at the age of like 11 to 16, like your sexual development feels like something that's private from your parents and separate mm-hmm. from your parents' concerns. So it does feel like the kind of thing where like you should be passing something around yeah. among your friends and building knowledge amongst yourselves yes. and that part of how humans process sexuality is at least in this western culture through privacy and through like a little bit of a sense of shame yes right like that yes. seems to be an essential part of the equation and i think that it's interesting that for men you get that shame but you also get like very graphically fulfilling fantasies and for women you get like a 389 page book that includes a lot of toxic ideology yeah but only one sex scene and that sex scene is a rape yeah it's <laughs> like men listening to this podcast if you're wondering if you where want, ladies get their wacky ideas yeah like if you want to have some idea of like how differently 
women end up coming at sex, at least women of our age, like that's a pretty informative story yeah. right there. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're very fortunate now that I think um, like the t- I think that the certainly there's space for books to be passed around middle schoolers right. with that like it's so interesting that you mentioned shame as part of the like um, you know North American experience of beginning to understand yeah. your, your well, human like you sexuality don't recognize that it's turning you on until you feel ashamed <laughs> yes and but at the same time there's that there's that privacy angle but yeah. if you and all and your entire social circle are reading the same books that make you feel turned on and shameful at the same time then it's a little isn't... bit more of a safe collective experience yes yeah yes. totally totally i felt so i was talking about this with one of my friends and she was describing how it was how she experienced it and it was like she and her best friend and her older sister and her best friend like found it at like mm-hmm. the cabin they rented on a lake. And like every day the older girls would take the younger girls paddling out on the lake in a canoe mm-hmm. and they would read the book aloud to them on like an oh island. My God. And the little girls knew that like the good parts had come because like the older girls would like quiet down and just like yeah. read it to each other and not wow. read it to the girls. And it's like basically it's like that's like the – it's like that is the way this book was designed to be experienced. Yes. Yes. And reading it as an adult, like you know you're missing out on the right experience of it. Yeah. Um where you would be so excited just to be hearing talked about some of these things that no one would ever talk about in front of you that you don't notice how grossly they're being talked about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how horrifying it all is. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, the I mean the whole point of the book is the is the plot sort of like getting you to this awful inexorable conclusion. Right. Um and then they're free. But not, they can never be free. They can never be free. Never ever. Ever. All right. So, as we wrap this up, <laughs> how, how how would we like to leave our listeners? Um I think first we want to give them all a high five. For... Yeah. Thanks for making it through with us. Yeah. Woo, we did it, guys. We did it. We did it. We got through this weird ass book. Yeah. Um, those of you who have read this book, we would love to hear from you under what like under what circumstances you experienced it yeah. for the first time. You know, how did you come across it? Who introduced it to you? For me, it was that one really terrible friend who nonetheless introduced me to some very interesting things. Yeah. Um, she was the first person to introduce me to the Smiths who became one of my favorite bands of all time. So thank you, <laughs> terrible girl. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we would love to know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you um, want to get in touch with us. Oh, sorry. You can't. Oh you yeah. Won't. And we'd also love to know like if you wanted to share like where you encountered your first sex scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely talk to us. And if you were as traumatized by what happened to Sally Lockhart as I was, please come find me. Absolutely. Um, and where can they find us, Soph? <laughs> well, Margaret, people can find us online in a variety of ways. Um, you previously mentioned our newsletter, Two mm-hmm. Bossy Dames, which after listening to this, if you would like to subscribe, um, you can look forward to more of this type of feminist yeah. Deeply contextualized to the broader culture. <laughs> Discourse. 
Yes, at tinyletter.com slash two bossy dames. We are also on Twitter at two bossy dames. That's T W O bossy dames. And then if you want to chit chat with us individually, um, you can find me on Twitter as at Sophie Biblio. And you can find me at Mrs. Friday Next. Hey everyone, this is Andrew just jumping in real quick here at the end to give you our standard spiel. Uh, you can find us at twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. If you have any messages for uh, Margaret and Sophie about the show this week, you can leave them there and we will be sure to pass them on. Uh, you can also contact us at overduepod at gmail.com. You can find out more about the show at OverduePodcast.com. And up there, you can also find links to Spreaker, our podcast host, HeadGum, our podcast network, and uh, our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash OverduePod. A great way for you to support the show financially if you are able and you are so inclined. We really appreciate everybody who supports us out there. Um, Craig and I will be back as usual next week. I'm going to be reading Adam Ross's Mr. Peanut if everything goes well. Thanks for listening, and I hope you had fun with this guest episode. If you want to find out where Craig and I went this week, subscribe to the Two Bossy Dames newsletter. Uh, we wrote one that went up last Friday, and we had a lot of fun doing it. So uh, we hope you enjoy it. That's uh, tinyletter.com slash twobossydames. Um, they have an archive of letters up there. And if you're not already a subscriber, which you should be, uh, you can click that archive and see the stuff that we did. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. Um, we're so grateful that Andrew and Craig let us take you into this uh, dark, twisted fantasy um, and trusted us with the podcast. It was yeah. really awesome hosting. And until next time, try to be happy, <laughs> I guess. Definitely. Try. Just it's try. worth trying. And try not to fuck your brother. <laughs> Ideally. Maybe cut that out. Yeah. Maybe. But try to be happy. <laughs> Definitely try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast.